Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, I'm Rebecca Tor, and welcome to the Emerald podcast series. Supply chains have a profound impact on our everyday lives, from the availability and price of goods to the creation of new jobs. The global response to the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the critical role of supply chains to our lives, but it also exposed their vulnerabilities and complexities. Supply chains have been in the spotlight once again following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has led to shortages and escalating prices of food, energy and the cost of raw materials. In the face of these challenges, effective supply chain management is more critical than ever. So what are the biggest questions in supply chain management today? And how can co-creation help tackle these issues and drive innovation? To explore these topics, I'm joined by two professors in supply chain management from the Leeds University Business School. David Lowesby, who is also Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Public Procurement, and Chi Yu Wan, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Physical Distribution and Logistics Management. My name is Chi. I'm a professor of supply chain management from Leeds University Business School. I'm also the editor-in-chief for International Journal of Physical Distribution and Logistic Management at Emirate Publishing. I used to work with many different companies, including ABB, the global electrical engineering company, Lego, a toy company, Carlsberg, a beverage company, and many others uh, as uh, supply chain professionals as uh, researchers and also sometimes a consultant. My research focuses a lot on how a company can use data from suppliers and customers to make a supply chain more resilient, more responsive and more intelligent. I currently help engineering companies in Leeds, for example, to develop their digital transformation plan uh, another multinational company in the medical sector uh, to develop data analytics capabilities, uh, a startup company uh, based in London to develop uh, supply chain tools to assess uh, forced labor risk and so on. I'm also a professor of research impact actually at Leeds University uh, Business School. Um, Like Chi, I'm an editor-in-chief of uh, another journal, Journal of Public Procurement, uh, but I also work as a guest editor on Chi's Journal too. I'm also a visiting scholar at the University of East Anglia Uh, where I manage a number of executive MBA and MSc uh, types of activity and programs. And the focus for my work really is the intersection of uh, behavioral science, in particular procurement and supply chain. So the commercial, uh, I'll call it aspects, but more in terms of thinking about the ways in which people are motivated to adopt uh, digital technology uh, is, is a key component, particularly when we consider the low adoption rates in some cases of digital technology in organizations. So that really becomes the big focus. And in my background, I guess I could say that I've probably been a group chief procurement officer for several decades, um, which probably ages me terribly, um, but worked for, for companies like uh, more recently Rolls-Royce, um, InchK, GSK, Barclays Bank. So quite a broad and, and, and uh, deep background in, in lots of areas, but also lived and worked internationally too for, for quite a number of years. So um, also have some uh, good global experience um, in the bag, as they say. 
So thank you. Fantastic. Oh, we're really lucky to have both of you. I mean, it's all your insights. Um, obviously, having like the theory and the practice and working with companies, it'd be great to um, sort of unpick some of that and um, find out your thoughts. And I suppose the where to start would be to sort of strip everything back and start with what is supply chain management and how does it affect our everyday lives? Supply chain consists of a chain of relationship between suppliers and buyers from the origin, such as the farms, forests, or um, mines, where natural materials are extracted, all the way uh, processings and manufacturings to the consumer who consume them, and also uh, the management of the end of life of product and materials uh, when we don't want it anymore. Uh, supply chain support lives in many ways, because it provides us with shelters, with medicines, food, educations, everything else we need. Um, it is very important because it can be disrupted. When it is disrupted, it can increase inflation. It can also even cause massive migration when disruptions of food uh, become severe. It matters also because many supply chain activities consume uh, natural resources and energy. They will emission uh, which warm up the planet and they might also pollute our uh, land rivers and and seas uh, which would then threaten our children and, uh, and and our grandchildren i mean it's quite interesting that you mentioned um supply chain disruptions and obviously recently we've seen lots of that with you know we had covid19 pandemic and you know we saw the shortages that we've experienced there and obviously now with you know the ukraine war obviously we've had escalating prices with supply chains disrupted and what are the biggest questions we're starting to see in supply chain management at the moment i think the realization is that we have a high degree of complexity uh, within our supply chains and, and perhaps what people don't realize is that there isn't a simple a to b route for uh, a singular product or service even from one supplier to the next and a good example was recently illustrated visually where you know crops picked in one country are then packed and then shipped to another country to be packaged uh, then another destination then to be repackaged and redistributed and and the, the multiples of different routes um, and suppliers and processes that are involved in that are tremendous but I think the other thing that that perhaps people don't see is all the things that we call indirect goods and services. So most organisations will consume around about 10 to 20% of their sort of total turnover costs in what we call indirect goods and services. And this might be anything from data storage to processing to uh, all sorts of things that we can think of from, from energy, all sorts of things that don't directly go into a product or a service. And so... To give an example, you know, my, my last role at, at Rolls-Royce, um, you know, we were very cognizant of the fact that there were 40,000 plus parts to any jet engine. So so the, the, the mantra that we had was that if you're one part short, you don't have an engine. Um, and so the, the, the fragility of that is absolutely immense, as you can imagine. And of course, all of these products have to be shipped on time to the right quality, to the right destination, Etc. And so, so therefore, supply chains become very, very complex. And of course, in a world where we've had huge amounts of stability, that has been quite, quite a, I'll call it still, still quite a task. 
but of course the moment you start sort of if you like putting ripples and and uh, unbalancing things and shorting things and delaying things and challenging quality and all sorts of things like that it becomes hugely disruptive and of course uh, it only takes one one piece of disruption in all of that complexity uh, and suddenly you you're you're in a position whereby you can't then satisfy or fulfill um, an end delivery point and that that's when you know people then start to notice as we have done recently uh, in our supermarkets in terms of tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and all those things that we love to consume if you like at any time of the year I might hasten to add um, so the whole seasonality doesn't doesn't figure into this equation it becomes very much an expectation that they will be there 24/7 365 days a year and of course the reality is that that takes quite a monumental effort to make that happen. Oh it's incredible um I mean just looking in this into this topic more and more um before obviously I, I met both of you um it really is quite surprising how it just takes one small thing you think it's small but it can just escalate and it can really impact and just yeah not being able to get tomatoes I mean that's just quite a shock to any consumer and obviously I suppose that goes in any any sector in any industry um I know we're going to be focusing on sort of the bridging the gap between academics and practitioners and I was just wondering and maybe Chi wants to answer this obviously in light of all these disruptions um Obviously, we need some innovation, I, I'm guessing, and we need some some answers to this. And where do you see co-creation coming into that? How can we encourage more collaboration between academics and practitioners? As an academic, I'm very fortunate to have lots of time to do research. Uh, I think it is important for people like us to take responsibility to conduct research that can inform uh, managers and policymakers to create a better world. Even though it is important to conduct desk research or theoretical research, working with practitioner is different because it actually is one of the best way we can co-create new questions and answers to many of the challenges we mentioned just now. These are very important engagements and also processes that we go through to change the way we think about the world, to understand what is happening recently, uh, so that we can co-create new solutions, new way of thinking uh, that can inform uh, both our intellectual work as well as what is happening in the real world. And what would you say at the moment are the the challenges and the opportunities around um, co-creation in supply chain fields? Some of the challenges we have is that Many academic institutions have put a lot of pressure uh, to academics like me to publish in high quality journal. Uh, that means we spend a lot more time in doing research very often in front of the computer rather than engaging with practitioner in the real world. Uh, sometimes that diverts our uh, effort and attention to details that do not necessarily uh, affect the real world. Uh, that sometimes divert us to perform research that do not answer the real world problems. So those are challenges that we face as academic uh, when it comes to the co-creation uh, of research with practitioner. And David, I don't know um, 
in terms of the challenges and the opportunities, if um, there's anything that you have seen in sort of the way that universities or research evaluation systems such as the Research Excellent Framework in the UK, how they're sort of helping to further these connections? Yes, certainly. And I think I think one of the things that, that um, perhaps to sort of dispel the myth that, that sort of academic theory and, and I'll call it uh, practitioner sort of application um, are, are not sort of... Um, I'll call it natural sort of partners, but actually they are because, again, it's a bit like the circular economy. It's a bit like the circular piece of knowledge, which is the the the, the work that's done by academics and practitioners must, in, in you know, by definition, um, connect with the two. And 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 you know, it's it's interesting when we sort of think about the fact that I mean, a recent quote that I picked up, which was, "Academic knowledge needs translation." Uh, because academics and practitioners pursue fundamentally different forms of knowledge. Uh, and what they mean by that is that whereby academics must pursue, if you like, what I call the more sort of generalizable knowledge, practitioners tend to pursue content-specific and actionable knowledge. And so therefore, you know, there there is a relationship be- between the two, but obviously academics then think about, so how can this be applied somewhere else? How can I share this knowledge somewhere else because whilst you might learn something in a particular sector a particular field a particular instance the ability to be able to make sense and translate that across a, a broader audience is critically important for academics and equally so the way in which then that that theory and that academic knowledge can be translated and applied in in the practical world and so i think that this 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 symbiotic relationship is is quite important and you know, continuously sort of shaping it, challenging it, understanding how it can be applied, understanding how it can be refined, modified, improved. Um, but also, I think as we, particularly as we realise, you mentioned earlier, sort of the whole, you know, COVID, um, Brexit, the Ukraine-Russian war, you know, all sorts of things like Suez Canal. You know, you keep naming them, but but all of these things, all these incidents. In some ways, whilst they can be quite disruptive, they do drive a certain degree then of resilience because moving out of this very stable sort of period that we've had, it then it then gets us to start to think about how more effective we need to be in terms of managing that disruption and that resilience and therefore um, creating systems and ways of working that, that actually, it's a bit like the, the shock absorbers for business, if you like, it's about the ability to be able to absorb those, but at the same time still manage to deliver a product or a service. And of course, in terms of research impact, um, it's hugely important that the two develop that sort of relationship whereby they can share and challenge and create, if you like, uh, knowledge and information for others then to go ah right okay now I understand maybe I can maybe I can apply this now into my sector or into my business or into this other particular problem that has a parallel I'll call it set of scenarios or circumstances that allows me then to think about how I might apply it somewhere else and of course that's the whole the whole essence of being able to generate knowledge that's actionable. I mean there's so much emphasis now on research impact and I guess you know systems like the research excellent framework I mean obviously they've got a whole section on impact and 
um, I, I suppose having the two, marrying the two together, um, where you do have some actionable results, which so it's not just that theory piece, I suppose really sort of encourages that more co-creation then I would have thought. I mean, in terms of sort of the the topics that the co-creation teams look at, what do you think they should be looking at right now, um, you know, in light of all these issues and, and the challenges, all the opportunities that, that exist now with, you know, new technologies? Yeah, I think I think there are many there are many things that that, that that where this can get get applied, and I think you know, simply thinking that it only gets applied to policy or something like that is a very simplistic sort of way of looking at it. And of course, we can think about it in terms of um, standards. We can think about it in terms of how that might shape the way in which the professional bodies then disseminate uh, practice and information and standards. Um, we might think about it in terms of how we might um, uh, construct, for instance. I mean, the, the UK is very good at producing, for instance, you know, the construction playbook, the innovation playbook, and and can illustrate that with case studies so people can go, ah, right, okay, I understand. Of course, the ability to be able to disseminate that knowledge in different ways for different audiences, because we all consume knowledge in different ways, is hugely important. And of course, our ability then, in a sense, is to say, right, this this was the situation before we did something, so we can benchmark the, the, the sort of categoric difference that, and the impact that we've made by doing something different. And that that can go for changing the way in which we approve a vaccine. You think about the thing that we've gone through with COVID, the typical route of approving a vaccine might take several years well, we did that in a matter of weeks. So, so you know, changing the way that works. I mean, we had a situation in Rolls-Royce where, you know, we were set the challenge. In fact, it came down and threw into my department, which was, oh, by the way, we need 5,000 ventilators in 12 weeks. Go. The typical procurement process for doing something like that might be 18 months. We needed to produce the 5,000 ventilators in 12 weeks. So that, that says to you that you've got to do something fundamentally different and of course, that that's the impact, in a sense, of looking and, and doing things in, in a very, very different way. Chi, Chi, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, there are many topics uh, we can co-create together with practitioner uh, because uh, many companies, for example, they do not have some specific technical knowledge like data analytics, uh, and but you usually have more capacity and resources to do so. So we can help them a lot to develop this kind of new capacity. Uh, we also need to work with a lot of companies to answer questions for the future because everyone wanted to become more circular, more resilient, more sustainable, but do not have a full answer to what is it and how to get there. The other thing I want to follow up with, uh, David, is, is that when you mentioned actionable uh, knowledge uh, managers use, um, many of these actions taken by managers uh, are sort of uh, hidden in their mind because they don't have time to write down what they have gone through, what they have learned. And it's our role as academic to co-create this knowledge with them uh, so that we can make perhaps more generalizable knowledge and transfer it and disseminate it to other companies and organizations. Having said that, many of the literatures fail to elaborate how managers utilize, develop their implicit knowledge and actionable knowledge. That is because it is hard to capture them. Uh, that is also because we can only create that knowledge if we work together with them 
at the same time because the knowledge is created here and now when they solve problems together. And by doing co-creations with companies, uh, this kind of knowledge can make more uh, transparent or ex explicit or we can elaborate them much more in, in detail uh, be because many of the solutions that we need to implement in different organizations will have to be uh, conceptualized. Uh, the conceptualization is the way in which companies apply something they heard about, something they see into the context in which they face in the organization. And that is the kind of knowledge creation process that uh, usually not as explicit in, in the literature. And that is how co-creation could help uh, because changes would have to be made in different contexts. Fantastic. Thank you. It's, it's such an insight. And uh, hearing the complexity of how you co-create and sort of the outcomes and how you implement those, I think, it, you know, there's, there's so much that you know, that needs still needs to be done. And I know, obviously, this um, field, supply chain field, is, is relatively a young one. When we look at sort of any, if obviously, you've got loads and loads of experience between the two of you. Um, when we look at sort of advice that you would give to practitioners and academics, I mean, what would you say in terms of like, how could they sort of work together? Um, is, is there anything that any advice from your learnings that you could sort of share um, in terms of how they could get involved in co-creation projects and bringing those two teams together and actually having those practical outcomes that will make a difference? I think I think the first the first thing is is sort of really the the I call it the mindset or the culture of of the organisations and the individuals to want to effectively collaborate because it's a collaboration. It's not a one party knows more or less than the other. And and so you know it, I think if the partnership is entered into on the basis that you know everyone has something to share, everyone has something to contribute, and everyone is is valued in that sort of. Uh, uh, exercise of of you know engagement, collaboration, and co creation. Then I think I think that has to be part and parcel of the you know setting the right environment, shall we say, for for really effective uh, knowledge transfer uh, between the parties. And I think this is where you know having mutual respect, you know having the ability to to communicate. And let's be honest. Um, you know, academics do do communicate in one language, and practitioners sometimes transcribe in a different language um, for different reasons. And I, and I think that that you know, you, you you will often find that in the middle of all this, you know, you 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 may well have a person that is the classic bridge spanner, as I call it, in a sense, the person that is effectively translating between the two parties. Sometimes even um, so, the various ways of doing this, there isn't a you know, one size fits all formula. Um, I think it is about having that open mind, creating the right culture. And I remember looking at sort of the whole concept of active listening. And, and the whole process of active listening is that you go in there to listen, not to formulate the response before the person has even finished speaking. So it's about making sure that you are receptive and open and ready to receive whatever information is going to come from one party or the other. And be able to then understand and 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 work with that, but also then ask the right questions. And sometimes this means reframing the information in a different way in order to make sure that the understanding is truly is truly there between the two parties. And so I think I think for me this is where um, 
you know, you've got the whole sort of recognition that, 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 and again, you know, I've worked with people who are super, how can I put it, knowledgeable about, let's say, you know, coding and, and developers and things like that, that, you know, way, way smarter than me uh, on any day of the week. But equally, what they then don't possess is, is other skills that, that we can bring. And so it is about that recognition that each party has got something to contribute. And sometimes it's even that sort of stepping back piece that says, what constituents affect it? It's a bit like baking a cake. What constituents do we need in order to create the best possible cake, or in this case, knowledge, that we can possibly make? And I think it's about making sure that you've got all of those constituents um, as part of that cross-functional team. And, and and I think it's about sort of having that open agenda, not a closed agenda, um, is, is hugely important right from the outset. Fantastic. That's so interesting. I mean, talking about open-minded, creating the right culture, active listening, reframing the questions, and having that open agenda. I think it's really, really interesting. And um, I don't know, Chia, if there's anything you wanted to add to that in your experience, what have you seen in terms of, you know, what's worked for bringing those those two different sort of mindsets together? Like uh, David, uh, I agree in many cases, I see innovations come from the way we combine knowledge from different sources. Um, being open to new ideas from unfamiliar sources uh, is the very important first step. If you don't do that, then you are uh, closing your doors to many different new ideas. And sometimes by um, asking questions to each other, uh, by explaining to each other what they want to achieve, uh, how they try to achieve uh, these new ideas, uh, you can actually get um, new thinking and uh, reframing of the strategic goals and also new ideas on how to achieve uh, uh, the goals uh, through these conversations. So I have, uh, through my different projects, knowledge transfer projects with different companies, gone through this kind of interaction uh, where companies recognize what they actually wanted or the company become more aware of uh, the different alternatives in terms of their risk and how they can achieve uh, those different uh, options. Uh, through this interaction process, this is how new ideas are created, um, new perspectives are created. Um, so I think it is important for us to make sure that we are open to this new possibility and spend a bit of the effort um, to you know questions and, and answers with different parties in order to really learn from each other. And I just want to take it to sort of your roles as as editors on various um, journals. Um, obviously, you both work on the International Journal of Physical Distribution and Logistics Management. I was just wondering, from that perspective, how do you encourage that co-creation between academics and practitioners? I mean, I don't know if there's anything specific the journal does or if it's uh, that you've had sort of examples of of this kind of co-creation work and then that's more of a sort of a, uh, a help to other people to see sort of how it can be done well. Maybe I can talk about the International Journal of Physical Distributions and Logistics Management, in short, IJPDLM. Um, like many other journals, we are an empirical journal. Uh, that means it, it involves a lot of data collection from organizations. However, the way 
data collectors are not necessarily in-depth engagements and a change of ideas. And what we want to encourage is the more in-depth exchange of ideas or doing things together, uh, because that is actually the way in which academics can create useful knowledge uh, that the industry can uh, can learn from. So we encourage and support others in doing this kind of co-creation research. We even provide uh, services and help them to translate research articles, the very long research articles, into shorter articles that can be understood by uh, practitioners. We then can help to achieve the goal of the journal because our goal is to facilitate exchange of new ideas between academic research and practitioner. I think I think the things that I would you know certainly certainly I would echo what Chia has just said in terms of you know the, the the translations I've done some myself where you do translation of a an academic paper and reduce it down to two or three pages that that really has the more sort of I'll call it punchy but more I'll call it appealing language to practitioners. Um, there are other things that we've done on the journal which um, introduces special issues so that they we can. Uh, address, I'll call it, very sort of topical pieces of research or, or uh, activity that we are we're, we're witnessing, shall we say, in the marketplace, um, and particularly driven sometimes by, um, for instance, a good example was there were there were lots of calls for additional research in 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 the initial phases of COVID um, because that was the sort of the first I'll call it trigger of disruption. But of course, we've seen an enduring wave of different types of disruption. And I think it's incumbent upon us to recognize, you know, very current events and and be able to uh, seek to sort of capture knowledge and new ways of thinking from, from that. So I think they're the kinds of things that we hope to be able to do and, and you know, keep pace with, if you like, in a sense, um, current events, really. Yeah, you, obviously, you've just mentioned um, various ways that you can uh, achieve that. And obviously, one of them was the translations. Have you seen sort of what difference it's made just to be able to sort of distill sort of a research paper into those two or three pages? Um, sort of what you're able to do with that tool? What differences can it make? I think what it does is, is, is I mean, as we were talking earlier about sort of the how how academics and practitioners engage. And I think what it's doing is it, it's it's creating, a, I'll call it a doorway for practitioners to come and engage with um, academics and recognise that, that there are different ways of working um, and, you know, leveraging or continue to leverage, I, wish, I should say, the, the sort of the knowledge that's created um, and make it accessible to, to, to broader and bigger audiences. And, and often not, you know, this is picked up um, by quite a number of sort of, I'll call it, channels um, from you know, different media channels, professional bodies, etc., will pick up this kind of sort of, if you like, literature and translation, which I think helps show that there is a an open door for people to come in and engage with the academic process, and and that it's not a perhaps the stereotypical sort of closed shop, and it's just purely the reserve of academics because academia can't operate on its own; it, it is wholly dependent upon. Um, engaging effectively with real-world activity, and that's that's hugely important. That the the IJPDM has created a new initiative to allow both academics and practitioner to 
publish their idea uh, in, a, in a special section called Innovators and Transformer. Um, it is a section that allows people to write shorter articles, uh, not the typical research articles that has uh, 10,000 words, but it's the shorter articles, 4,000, 5,000 words, and that uh, disseminate new ideas. Uh, about transformations or innovations in the supply chain. Um, this can be also a piece of work co-created by academic and practitioner, but practitioner can also write about this into our special section because it will encourage new way of thinking or new research that will then further elaborate what is this new innovations about. So is that open to sort of any anyone to to come to you and, and put that idea across then? Or is it something that you sort of say, oh, we want to have something in the journal about this particular topic? Well, it is open to anyone who wants to um, disseminate new ideas into uh, the academic audience as well as the practitioner. Um, we also uh, plan to create special issues where we call uh, for a particular topic. Uh, to be sort of uh, discussed in the special section. Well, thank you. I look forward to having a look at that and seeing what's coming out. Um, and sort of to wrap things up, um, it'd be really interesting just to sort of see what you think will happen in the future in terms of how co-creation between academics and practitioners will play out. Um, as you'll see in the trend, if there's a trend and sort of how it's going, but I mean, maybe something about what you what you think will happen and, and where you would like to see this yourself. Yeah, I, I think I think what, what what we're witnessing. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm part of I'll call it almost like a new breed of professor, which is professor of research impact, and it's interesting because the uni or Leeds University Business School appointed four professors of research impact, but it's quite interesting that we're already getting approaches from other universities and other parts of the university saying mm, that's very interesting. Oh, right, okay, so how can we do some of that and what about what about this and how can you help us with this and it's it's interesting literally over a, pa a pattern of sort of six months or more worth of of, of activity I, I think it's probably fair to say that we've all now got more work than we know what to do with really because the the demand is coming thick and fast so clearly there is a there is a demand and I think there's a realization that actually to be able to simultaneously deliver, theory and impact is actually a really more exciting and more more sort of how can I put it progressive way of doing things and, and certainly gets the the attention as well as the engagement of different audiences so it's almost like what what's not to like about it really amazing thank you and, and Chi I don't know what your thoughts are and sort of like the future is co-creation uh, many universities place themselves in the heart of the society uh, we are supposed to contribute to the society. Um, so it is actually very important for us to recognize that as an academic, that uh, co-creation with practitioner is an important part of our job uh, because we want to create meaningful knowledge. We want to create impact in the real world. And we can also see university putting a lot more emphasis in this, university putting resources into this, including appointments of uh, impact professors, including creating new support organizations uh, and, and staff uh, supporting me and my other colleagues to create impacts, uh, including giving us money and funding to do this kind of uh, engagement activities. The transitions from uh, the 
more uh, ivory tower kind of research to more engagement kind of research, of course, will take time because we still have another pressure, uh, which is very prominent in the academic is to publish uh, high quality journal that is changing the way people, you know, uh, prioritize. Uh, however, I can see the strength uh, and also the, the increased pressure and expectations that we academic uh, engage closely with organizations, create real world impact. So I would say that this is the best chance for us to create better relationship with uh, different organizations whom we study, whom we work together. And, and that is the way we can create and generate new ideas. And somehow many other academic journals also started to put more emphasis in how relevant is our research and asking questions, who is going to uh, learn from your research article, in what way, in a specific manner, uh, how this can change the way we manage uh, supply chains and so on. So I would say, yes, everybody should uh, take this as a positive change and uh, contribute to this. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And for anyone that's listening to this podcast right now, if there was just one piece of advice that you would give them um, in terms of encouraging co-creation or finding co-creation opportunities, what, what would you say to those people? I think, I think I would just simply say, if you don't start asking some questions, then you'll never know. So I think it's a question of just simply just speaking up, putting your hand up, you know, asking a question in whatever whatever form or, or through whatever channel that, that is appropriate. And again, you know, we all know that there are many social media channels. And I, I think that, that there are a lot of academics and practitioners who are willing to engage in a debate for those that are, how can I put it, more novice in this space and say, yeah, you know, I'll give you some advice. I'll point you in the right direction. I'll, I'll suggest some names of people you can go talk to. Um, so I do think that, that there is a, a culture to engage very openly in that and, and to want to help and support. So I, I think I would just simply say, go ask the questions and, and don't be shy. Uh, just, just go out there and ask the question, really. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Chi, any, any insights from you? Anything that you would suggest? Yeah, if, if I speak to uh, academics who have uh, been challenged by editors that, oh, their ideas are not novel enough and all oh, their uh, research uh, has limited implication to practice and so on, uh, the best way to confront this is to go work with a practitioner because new ideas come from uh, a change of ideas. Uh, new ideas come from exposing to new way of thinking. Uh, we might think uh, what managers might be doing uh, from our office, but in the real world, when you interact with them, you can understand much better in terms of the way they think about the problem they've confronted with and the way they solve real world problems. And in many ways, uh, new understanding comes from this interaction. And therefore, you know, it could also help us to publish novel idea in, uh, in journals. 
Well, I love your enthusiasm, both of you. You can see really see the passion and the excitement in, in both of you in, in terms of like, this is a growing field and there's so many opportunities to be had. And, and I wish you all the success in everything you do. And I hope that we, we get to find out sort of how some of those projects have evolved over time and how you know people are working with each other from different industries and sectors. And um, thank you very, very much for your time and for everything you shared today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find more information about our guests and a transcript on our website. I'd like to thank my guests for joining me and sharing their insights, along with podcast producer Daniel Ridge and the studio This Is Distorted.